Hebrews chapter 13. Brethren, I have lots of favorite verses, but toward the top of that list are two verses here in Hebrews 13. And I hope that they're favorites of yours after you hear them again. Hebrews 13 at verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The benediction to the book of Hebrews by the Apostle Paul. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. If you were to ask the average church-going American, what does covenant salvation mean? Half of them wouldn't know how to start an answer. Because we live in a day where there's a famine for the Word of God and very few church-going people even know the rudiments of their religion and of their salvation and of the doctrine of Christ. Some would make a stab at it by saying, well, I think that covenant means testament, and there was the Old Testament when men were saved by works, and there's the New Testament when men are saved by grace. Now, I want to bless the Lamb of God tonight and tell you so that you can be established in this. And remember, brethren, for those of you that are older, I have a number of members that run all the way down to children. And I want them to be established in the truth. Here is a fact. Every soul of Adam's race that has ever or ever shall be saved was saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as all others, without a difference or an exception or modification. Every soul that has ever been saved was saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever be confused about that. They were not saved a different way under the law of Moses. They were not saved a different way under the patriarchs before Abraham and Moses. And they're not going to be saved a different way during the millennial kingdom. All salvation, according to Acts 15 and verse 11, is according to the grace and by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that first stab is totally in the dark, but it's a common error. People think that they were saved by works under the Old Testament and by grace under the New Testament. If you run into some Presbyterians or other Reformed Catholics, when you run into Presbyterians, they'll say they're of the Reformed persuasion. What that means is, were Reformed Catholics that follow the origin of that word. They're Reformed Catholics. They're still sacramentalists. And I'm sorry if I hurt the feelings of any former Presbyterians that are here, though I know them better. Their hearts are one with mine. They love the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Presbyterians and other Reformed Catholics would tell you the covenant salvation is an arrangement whereby believers can take their children into the church and have them sprinkled, and they will be made members of the covenant 
of salvation because they're children of believers. One believer or two believers. One or two, the children of, of a believing parent or parents are members of the covenant. And they're taken in and sprinkled that way, which is a sign and a seal and does indeed convey the grace of salvation. Though they immediately must tell you that it doesn't guarantee the salvation of any, nor is it necessary for their salvation, and yet we must baptize all babies. It's a covenant salvation, and they'll go to obscure verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 14, which says, else were your children unclean, and reason from that that salvation is in a covenant relationship that God's established with believers through their children, and that baptism of the New Testament is the same as circumcision of the Old Testament. Where they make that connection, it's difficult and strained at the very best. Amen. We don't baptize infants in the New Testament. We don't baptize them by sprinkling. But that's what you'll get as an explanation for covenant salvation. And brethren, what I'm dealing with right now is held by most of the esteemed educated theologians of this country. And there's great volumes written on covenant salvation. Now, most Baptists and others believe that Jesus made a covenant pinata. When you ask them, most Baptists, if you ask them, what does covenant salvation mean? They would say Jesus died on the cross and filled a pinata with spiritual blessings. And all you have to do if you want to go to heaven is get your stick, call a decision, and go up and beat on the covenant pinata. And hopefully the blessings of salvation will tumble out and you can be saved and go to heaven when you die. And so today we have the horrendous, blasphemous use of decisional regeneration in evangelistic efforts to get people to make a commitment. I mean, they'll have motocross championships for Jesus. And they'll try for five minutes to get, they'll have two testimonies by the motocross winners to get children, teenagers, to make a decision for Jesus. And that's hitting the big pinata in the sky. And what Jesus did on the cross is supposedly held in that paper. And if you hit it hard enough with your decision, you'll be saved. They don't call it a piñata, Andrew, but that's how they treat it. Just make a decision for Jesus, and that's how you're saved. And they think that's covenant salvation. I want to tell you about covenant salvation tonight. Amen. I want to tell you that, I, that we are saved, and peace has been made with God by the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Right. This covenant is from eternity. Before there was ever an Adam... Before there was ever a dispensation on earth, God said, let us save men by grace. And so they purposed their respective roles in a great transaction of grace that we, we call salvation, in which the word intended to join human flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and die a death on the cross at the hands of the judgment of God the Father, 
in responsibility, in, in punishment for our sins, and that the Holy Ghost would apply the benefits of that cross to us, sanctifying and regenerating our spirits, that we would cry, Abba, Father, and love Him, and we would receive the adoption of sons, our names would be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and we'll spend forever in heaven, because God made a covenant with Himself before the world began. Amen. That's covenant salvation. Amen. And it's different, and it's not taught hardly anywhere. But it gives all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And brethren, if it's not the truth, and I've come up with a scheme of salvation that gives more glory to Jesus Christ than the other schemes, then where is the wisdom of God? But I want to tell you something. It is the wisdom of God. Because when anyone hears this message according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24, but unto them which are called, the preaching of the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. Amen. The wisdom of God is that God made a transaction in eternity for you by name, inscribed your name in the book of life and in the palms of his hands, and that is the covenant transaction. God made a deal with himself. Right. He didn't make a deal with you. Amen. If he'd have made a deal with you, you'd have refused it, rejected it, and run the other way. He did make a deal with us in the Garden of Eden, I'll tell you that. He said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat of the tree of life and you can live forever. But do you know what tree we wanted? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's how far a covenant went when God made a covenant with man. It damned the entire human race to an eternity in hell. That's covenant damnation. Covenant salvation is by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let's, let's talk about a covenant for a minute. What does the word covenant mean? It's a will. The way we're using it tonight is a will. It's a testament. What, does, what is written at the top of a man's will? There's several words. It is the last will and testament of so-and-so, whoever is making the will, whoever is willing Benefits and blessings to beneficiaries. The last will and testament. A good father is good during this life, and a good father is good at death. And the Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. The Bible tells us that house and riches are the inheritance of fathers. The New Testament tells us that the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. A good man has a will leaving some of his labors in this life to his children. We call these written documents the last will and testament. They're called a covenant. Some of you have told me about yours. Some of you have told me about the one your father did for you. And so even in the moment of death, a wise father has provided for his children to participate in his estate and to have an inheritance. Sometimes you'll read in the newspaper that a probate court is dealing with wills and last testaments, and they can't find some of the beneficiaries. And so they have to take and find servants of the court, clerks of the court, and send them out to see if they can locate lost beneficiaries of a will and testament. Don't I have a great job? The judge of heaven has hired me as a servant of the court to go out and look 
for lost beneficiaries and tell them that they have an infinite treasure waiting for them in heaven. Amen. That's the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The covenant is all over. It was over in the purpose of God who can call those things which be not as though they were from eternity. The Bible says that known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. But there are servants of the court that get to go out and find those lost beneficiaries and tell them while they're wandering through this world with guilt, with grief, with fear, with an unexpressed love, because of the regeneration that the Holy Spirit has already applied, that a ransom has been found. Amen. The judge, we may say, is God the Father, the great Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, now the God of peace. I love a judge that's at peace. Amen. Now the God of peace, the testator is the one who writes the will. He makes the, te- he's, he makes the statement, the testament, And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is by the death of the testator by which we get the benefits of a will. And the executor is the person applying. All wills have an executor. It's the person that upon the death of the testator, the executor is to take the benefits that the testator has said the beneficiaries are supposed to get and make sure they get them. Isn't that glorious? It's the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost takes the benefits, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and applies it to you. And I mean... He doesn't offer it to you. He applies it to you. And when he applies it, brethren, your soul lives. It's except a man be born of the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is the illustration. A will is a piece of paper that your parents write down. I want my children to have everything I've got. And here it all is. And I want them to have it. And I sign my name. And here are witnesses to verify my signature that when I die, they get everything I have. I want to tell you about the covenant that we have with the Lord God. Not only do we get everything that he has, we get everything that he is. Did you know that we're going to inherit God? The Bible tells me that. I'm telling you something right now that your little mind, my little, for let me start out. So before you get offended, my little mind can't explain it and your little mind can't receive it, that we shall inherit God. He will be the object. He'll be our portion in a way that you haven't said it yet quite. He'll be our portion. Brethren, that's covenant salvation. God the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost making a covenant deal, a transaction, an arrangement, a design before the worlds began that they were going to save sinners, specific sinners, specially chosen sinners, and save them certainly and without one being lost and give them all the blessings of heaven so that for eternity there would be some lowly creatures lower than the angels that would be suffering the fires of hell praising him forever and ever and ever for the glorious blessings that we have unconditionally by his grace. And everyone that has ever been saved was saved by the everlasting covenant of grace For every man was saved, even by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, 
through the blood of the everlasting covenant. I want you to remember those words. It's the God of peace. He is no longer the God of wrath. He's not the God of judgment, though He will hold a great day of judgment. We have peace with Him by Jesus Christ our Lord because He has made peace by the blood of His cross. He is called the Prince of Peace. This is covenant salvation. And don't you let anyone else ever lead you astray about it. This is what we believe. This makes us different from the other churches in Greenville. We don't believe there's a great pinata for you to strike at with some decision. We believe that there was a decision made before the worlds began, and that decision was made by God himself, that he would save us, period. And when God purposes to save, who is going to stop his right hand or even question what he's doing? Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the last three verses. What brother read these one month ago tonight? Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. I want you to just read these verses. We we heard them last month when we had the Lord's Supper. Just consider them in light of this covenant transaction and see if you don't see the various parties to the Godhead relating to each other in these three verses. Isaiah 53 and verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now look at that. You've got the Lord and you've got him. You've got two parts. You've got the Son of God and you've got the Lord. And yet one is pleased in bruising the other. Do you think they did that from animosity? Or do you think they did that by design and plan? and covenant agreement for you and for me. Amen. That right there is enough. That is That right there is enough for this to be special. Amen. Right. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why did God, infinitely perfect, independent of all other entities, in eternity purpose to bruise himself through the Lord Jesus Christ? It wasn't because he felt sorry for you and me. It was to magnify his own glory. And brethren, can we glorify him tonight so that he knows that his blood-bought redemption even has value in us tonight? Most of this world rushes on. I'm going to show you a verse that says they forget that they were purged from their old sins. Let us love him tonight. A, A transaction was made where the Lord would bruise himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's right there. The evidence of the bruise is right there. The bruising is right there. We are going to tear the flesh and we are going to drink the blood of a bruise, a severe bruise that caused death. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. Brethren, that's you and that's me. He shall prolong his days. He didn't stay in that grave. He's alive forevermore. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Brethren, does that rejoice your heart tonight? This is covenant salvation. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now God moves into the first person. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 
And that's why I'm your pastor tonight. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. Look what he's doing down there. Look what I'm having to do to him. This is my beloved son. And he shut out this glory of the sun, the S-U-N. And darkness reigned on the earth as God bruised him and put him to grief and made his soul an offering for sin. But brethren, he saw the travail of his soul and he was satisfied. And he said, I'm going to divide a portion for him with the great. And I want to tell you that Ephesians chapter 1 tells me that Jesus Christ He's exalted him far above all principalities and powers and every name that is named in this world and in the world to come. Amen. It's a man, Christ Jesus, that is there. Right. Far above all principalities and powers. Satan himself that the angels do not bring a railing accusation against. Humbly bows before the feet of Jesus Christ of Nazareth right. because by his blood his work was destroyed in taking us to hell. Amen. That's covenant salvation. It's in Isaiah 53. It's in the whole Bible from beginning to end. That covenant was known in the very beginning when God told Satan in the form of the serpent that that woman was going to have a son that would bruise his head. That was a covenant transaction already made, and it spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God. When I think of a lamb, I think of something small. I think of something white, fluffy, weak, fragile, tender, Vulnerable. And so the Lord Jesus Christ became vulnerable, made himself of no reputation, and he laid down his life willingly. Lambs don't fight back. And his life was taken from him at the cross of Calvary. But I want to tell you about the Lamb of God that reigns today. He sits there at the right hand of God the Father, and he's all in glory. And we, I read about him when I started the service tonight. That all those thousands of angels and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, in case we forgot a few million, they're all there singing praise to the Lamb of God. Amen. And he's glorious. And he's going to grind Satan and this earth under his feet and let you do the same right behind him in his glorious army. That's covenant salvation. Amen. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9. If your father makes a will that says, I want my daughter to have my house, when does the daughter get the house? When her father dies. Because a will which says, upon my death, I want my children to have these particular things, that piece of paper doesn't go into force or into effect or mean anything until the father dies. And so... We have these words in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death. Brethren, there is a question that rages, that has raged among certain segments of the Baptists. And that has been, are you means Baptists or anti-means Baptists? What they mean by that is, do you believe in the gospel means of regeneration or that Jesus Christ regenerates without any gospel means? 
And we would say we're anti-means Baptists if they define that question clearly enough for us because we don't believe that the gospel is our means of regeneration. But I want to tell you something. We're means Baptists because our covenant salvation is by the means of his death. Because look what the verse says. And we want to be scriptorians. Hebrews 9.15, for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. God has promised eternal life to us before the world began as part of his eternal covenant. And how does he put it into force? He sent his son Jesus Christ to die. The testator died. Verse 16 says, for where a testament is, that is, a last will and testament, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all, while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. That is why, from the Garden of Eden forward, all the way, there has always been blood to signify death, because our salvation was conditioned upon the means of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there was always blood, always blood, because it was for 4,000 years pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ that would shed His blood, and His life would be taken, the testator would die, the covenant would go into force, and we would receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Praise His holy name. You don't need to go to seminary to learn about covenant salvation. You don't need to read 500-page dusty old volumes defining the Heidelberg Catechism for you. We just go to the Word of God and see a transaction that took place before the world began. But just 2,000 years ago, in Nazareth of Galilee, was a man named Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us, who was the Son of God. That is what we believe. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We believe in the means of salvation, the means of death. Come to verse 12. Hebrews 9 and verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The holy place is where the judge sits. All wills are taken to a judge to determine if they're valid. Is this, ju- is, this, is this last will and testament true? Is it legal? Has it duly been signed and witnessed by witnesses? Will it hold up in court? That's the holy place. Jesus Christ took his blood to prove that he had died. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in. It was an easy settlement. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. Brethren, Jesus Christ offered his blood through the eternal spirit. But he didn't offer his blood through the eternal spirit to you or to me or to any other sinner. He offered his blood through the eternal spirit to God. 
Jesus Christ went into heaven and offered his blood through the eternal spirit to God as the sacrifice for our sins. And brethren, his blood was accepted. If you want to say that you were saved by accepting Jesus, as long as you remind people and explain to them that it was God accepting Jesus, we'll let you use that terminology. But it's not a dead sinner in the flesh accepting Jesus. That's blasphemous to my Savior. Because the only Jesus that a man dead in trespasses and sins and in the flesh accepts is the other Jesus of this world. The Jesus Christ of Nazareth is only accepted by those who are, according to 1 Corinthians 1, already saved. The covenant transaction was between God and Christ. Jesus took his blood to God the Father, not to us. I'm not a sacramentalist at all. I'm not carrying salvation to the masses. I'm carrying a message to a lost few. The court has sent me. If I can find some of those lost beneficiaries, I want to tell them what Jesus did for them. And you know what? They always get so excited when they're here. I've seen so many preach at great gatherings, and most of them go out, and I don't ever see any difference. There doesn't seem to be very much excitement. But when you find one of God's elect, like a Cornelius... Oh, when you find the Ethiopian eunuch in a chariot reading Isaiah 53 and you explain to him the covenant salvation of the last three verses, he wants to get down and do something with his conscience. Right. Amen. Brethren, the beneficiaries of this covenant were written there before the world began. Doesn't that, isn't that what the Bible tells us about the book of life? Amen. The names that are written in the book of life were written there before the world began. These are simple verses. But do you know what? These are things we're supposed to remember. Because if we forget them, we live a different way. And I don't want us to forget them. In John chapter 6 and verse 36, Jesus said, I came down from heaven. John 6, 38. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now I could play games with you tonight and say, look at, see, he's obeying the will, the covenant. But that's not expressly what is meant here, although it's implied in general. He's obeying the will of God the Father, who sent him into this world to lay down his life for the elect, for the sheep. Remember, he's the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. He is not the great shepherd of all animals. He's not the great shepherd of the goats. He's the great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13, 20. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. That should be enough right there to show us that Jesus died a very particularly designed death for very specific individuals that God had given him. A covenant transaction. We could look at many other places and see it, but I want you to see Titus chapter 1, that because of this planned covenant Eternal life was promised before the world began. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Oh, I'm so thankful that it doesn't say that eternal life was offered because I fear so much that I would have rejected the offer. Right. We've, we've seen that Jesus Christ did offer his blood, but he offered it to God. And God had already seen the travail of his soul and was satisfied. 
Titus chapter 1, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. How in the world could He promise eternal life? Because it was a covenant that He had designed that was sure and would definitely come to pass. He can call those things which be not as though they were, and He could promise it. He wasn't offering it. He promised it, and it would be sure to every one of the beneficiaries of the covenant of salvation. But hath in due times manifested His word, What's His word? His promise of eternal life. He's made manifest. He has opened up and revealed that promise in due times through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And I was in Isaiah 53 in verse 12. If you want to go and look at it more closely, I was there. I'm here in verse 3. I'm not in verse 2 at all, because the promise of eternal life is between God Himself and you giving that gift to you. All I do is tell you about it. Right. I like it that way. Amen. I don't go to sleep at night wondering if anyone's <laughs> going to be in hell because I didn't do my job well enough. It's a, it, it keeps me from sleep enough just thinking about the hell that some of you are in in this life, let alone worrying about the hell in the next one. What a burden they put on themselves. There's only one man that can take that burden, Amen. and he took it successfully for all of them because he saw right. his seed. In Isaiah 53. Isn't it glorious? Brethren, did you know that this covenant includes all the conditions necessary for it in preparing you for heaven? That you don't have to prepare yourself for heaven? I know that I said to you today, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. But that was under the old covenant. Do you want to see the new covenant? Look at Hebrews 8. Look at Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, verse 10. Hebrews 8, 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. And oh, some people get so confused here because it's in the future tense. They think this must be about the millennium. This must be something in the future about Israel. Well, no, he's just quoting from Jeremiah 31. It was future tense to Jeremiah about 500 years before Christ, speaking of what Jesus Christ was going to do. Amen. He's the great shepherd of the sheep and the mediator of the new covenant. Surely you understand that. It's future tense because Jeremiah had to put it in the future tense because Jesus was still 500 years away. I will make a, I will put my laws into their mind. Thank you, Lord, and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That is the revelation of the sanctification, redemption, and forgiveness of sins and regeneration that takes place by the power of the Holy Ghost. It happened in the Old Testament, too. They just didn't know about it. All they knew about in the Old Testament was they better get down to that tabernacle again and bring another living animal with them. In the New Testament, we're told what the Holy Ghost is doing right here. There There wasn't a change in the covenant. Men were always saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a change in the administration and revelation of the knowledge of God. Amen. Do you understand that? The covenants, men were always saved the same way. 
Old Testament, God just wanted them to know how sinful they were. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. We already saw that in Hebrews chapter 9, but I didn't mention it, where it said that we might receive redemption from the transgressions that were under the first covenant. Because the first covenant makes us know we've got a whole lot of transgressions. The new covenant says, I will remember them no more. Amen. Now, brethren, if you saw some print at the bottom of the will that said their sins and iniquities, will I remember no more? Would you run out of that courthouse and want to celebrate? Amen. Amen. That's right. Amen. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Look at Hebrews 9.14. Hebrews 9.14. What's the gospel for? What do I preach for? I am preaching to go after your consciences. Right. I want to get a hold of your conscience and tell you what God has done for you in the best terms that I know how, with the best of my ability, so that you love him more and that you want to do things for him while we're here. Amen. Now, what did your conscience do when you took all those sacrifices to the temple and you walked away after watching a bullock, and a lamb get killed. Was your conscience purified? Nope. Were you excited to know that your sins were forgiven? The burden was still there. The burden was still there. But look at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Amen. That right there is the purpose of the gospel. Jesus Christ already obtained eternal redemption for us in verse 12. But the message of that eternal redemption comes along to purge our conscience from guilt, fear, shame, and ignorance about how we can ever be righteous before God. And when we hear the truth that covenant salvation, Jesus has done it all, that ought to purge us from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. And the dead works are the works of the first covenant in Hebrews chapter 9. Because they're dead. Bringing bullocks and lambs and so forth were dead works. They never purified the conscience. And brethren, do you understand this right here? This is what the gospel does. It brings the knowledge of the last will and testament to your conscience for your conscience to glorify him. And what's the first act? Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being baptized. Thank you, young brother. Because it's the answer of a good conscience. First Peter 3.21 Because a man that hears that there was a covenant transaction for him that gives him eternal heaven with God and all spiritual blessings, doesn't he want to do something with his conscience? Amen. He wants to get down in that water and be baptized like a fool for Jesus' sake. To praise the Lamb of God in a burial and a resurrection, just like Jesus went through for our sins. Just when God was looking down and bruising him and prolonging his days by raising him from the dead. We want to answer him with our conscience. That is where the gospel comes in. Brethren, look at Galatians 5. Let me, let me see if I can make this simple in one verse. The whole world, the whole world that is, that aren't sacramentalists, that is, they bring grace with baptism, the Lord's Supper, they don't call it that, they call it the Mass. 
or they call it the Lord's Supper if they're Presbyterians, who still want to use the Catholic word sacrament, but don't want to call it a mass. Or you go to the Catholics who've got seven of these things. Yes, seven. Can you believe it? Oh, MIPS must be a perfect number. They have seven sacraments. They've got baptism and they've got mass. And they've got, uh, let's see, they've got confirmation and holy matrimony and holy orders and extreme unction. Penance. Did I get up to seven? I think I'm about there. Extreme unction, last rites. They're sacramentalists, and then most others that look like us outwardly to most people will say that the salvation, they're the pinata ones. They believe that salvation is obtained by someone do making a decision for God, and then God gives him salvation as a result for what he's done for the Lord. And it's a decision. They say they believe that the gospel is the message that has to be taken to the lost for the lost to respond to it in order for them to be saved. I'm telling you tonight that salvation is entirely by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ according to covenant design before the world began, and he completed it. And when he went into the holy place, he had obtained eternal redemption for us, and he said, I will not lose one of them. There was nothing more to be done. Why in the world do you think he said on the cross... It is finished. Why did he say that? Because it was finished. Now, that isn't hard, is it? Now, the gospel is to tell you, the lost beneficiary of the covenant, what he has done for you, so that while you're here in this world, you can have peace of mind, joy of heart, praise God, and obey him before the world. It's all in your conscience. The gospel only deals in your conscience. I don't deal in your vital nature. I don't deal with the book of life. I don't deal with election. I don't deal with anything but your conscience. Amen. Watch this. Galatians 5.4 Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Galatians 5.4 Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Amen. Now, is it possible for Christ to become, he was once of an effect to someone, and then to become of no effect to someone? Impossible. Is it possible to be justified by the law? Impossible. Is it possible to fall from grace? In what sense, exactly? In the legal sense, can you fall from grace? In the eternal sense? No. Final sense? No. Vital sense? No. no. Conscience. Yes. Conscience. The gospel and all the message that Paul ever preached was to the consciences of men. Amen. Jesus Christ by himself did all the rest. Right. For as by one man many were made sinners, for by the disobedience of one many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. It's all of Christ. He did, his obedience is all of salvation. The gospel comes along to preach to you the message that you have great benefits waiting for you by the covenant of God in salvation. It's for your conscience. I want you to see in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4 that if a person is taught the wrong message, they're justified by the law in their conscience. In their conscience, they're justified by the law. If a person is justified by the law in their conscience, 
then that means they've fallen from grace because law and grace are antithetical to each other. They're opposites. And if you are justified by the law in your conscience, Christ is of no value because you're looking to yourself for salvation. I want to tell you something about all those people who go out and look for decisions and tell those that make a decision that now they know they're going to heaven and that their, their salvation is based on their decisions. They're playing with their poor consciences and taking the glory away from Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that it's all of Jesus Christ. And because of what he has done, you have a conscience that should want to obey him, not in order to be saved, but because you are saved. Don't forget Galatians 5, 4. It's all in the conscience. That's what the gospel goes for. Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. What was he praying for in Romans 10.1 when he said that? He was praying for a bunch of his brethren who had a conscience that were struggling with keeping the law of Moses for righteousness. Right. He said, I bear Jesus Christ operates a whole fart lot deeper than that. Right. But what he did for us should move our consciences. Amen. Brethren, there's no benefit for a natural man. I'm a clerk of the court. I'm a servant of the court. I don't run out and tell everyone that they have benefits waiting for them because most of them don't. Why would I want to do that? That's the height of cruelty. And I don't go out and lay conditions on those people on the street in order for them to become a beneficiary of that covenant. That's blasphemous. That's telling the God who wrote the covenant that he didn't do a thorough enough job. And I believe he has every name there that he wants. And brother, when I come to the spiritual man that's made alive by regeneration, I'm going to tell you how much I do. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. You know, the natural man on the sidewalk doesn't doesn't give a rip about God's last will and testament. Because the Bible tells me the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. There's the Spirit of God with that glorious message of a last will and covenant of God. They don't care. It's foolishness to them because it's spiritually discerned. And I'm speaking to spiritual men, I hope, tonight, who spiritually discern it and love it. 2 Timothy 1.9 says in verse 9, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. That sounds like there's some purpose involved. Not according to our works, but according to his own, yes, indeed, purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. There is our covenant salvation, given us in Christ Jesus before the world began by the purpose and grace of God. I I told you it was all of grace. But is now made manifest. Aren't these the very same words from Titus chapter 1 and verse 3? But is now made manifest. That promise of eternal life is now made manifest by preaching but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What do I do for your conscience? I bring life and immortality to light. And what I'm telling you tonight is so radically different from the rest of the religious world who are trying to get their fingers into the work of God. And brethren, the work is all of God and it's all of grace and men's fingers don't get into it at all. That covenant is between God and and himself. And all I do is tell you about it. I bring it to light. I am a servant of the court. I am telling you that a legal transaction has taken place that you did not know about. And it was my job, commissioned by the high king of heaven, 
to come and tell you that you have benefits waiting for you in the Lord Jesus Christ, who secured them for you through the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's a great job, and it's a great pleasure to tell you tonight that you have great benefits waiting for you. I just bring them to light. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If someone thinks that I was a little unkind, describing decisional regenerationists as having a covenant pinata, I would suggest that you read Philippians chapter 3, the first couple of verses, and see what Paul says about those Jews who thought that circumcision was the way of salvation. And see if he doesn't play a little bit with their words. Mm -hmm. He says, beware of the concision, the body mutilators. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, brethren, listen to these words. Verse 18, all things are of God. Do you believe that tonight? All things are of God. Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a covenant transaction? He hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. All we do is tell you about what God's done in Christ. To wit, I like that sometimes in the Bible. That means I don't have to look for a commentary. It means God's going to give me one. To wit, this is what I meant in verse 18. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. All I have is the word of reconciliation. God is reconciled. Do you know where that was in Hebrews 13? Now the God of peace. A God that's at peace is a God that's reconciled. Now the God of peace. That's the word. Peace. There is peace achieved with the great and holy God through Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep and the blood of the everlasting covenant. All I have is the word of that reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, Be ye reconciled to God. At what level? At the conscience level. In your conscience, where you thought there was great enmity between you and God. Because of your sins, God has already put away the sins. Eternal redemption has been obtained for you. Eternal life has been promised and is sure. But do you know about it? But do you know about it? I'm an ambassador for Christ. And I appeal to you tonight to believe the benefits that are waiting for you and to celebrate those benefits in remembering how they were purchased by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I beseech you, on the behalf of Jesus Christ my Lord and God, who exalted him to his own right hand, that you would be reconciled to God in your conscience. I can reconcile you no further than that. I am teaching you sound doctrine right now that you will not hear elsewhere, and it's not because I'm special. It's because God is gracious to us. Amen. God is very gracious to us. Right now I am drawing a theological line that most of you may not appreciate. But it's very, very dear to our congregation. And it's not a fine line. It's a great, bold line that gives all the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That was all his part of the deal. God already reconciled us to himself before the world began in covenant design. And in fact, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ went into the holy place with the blood for us. Done, signed, deal. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. It is over. All I can do is appeal to your consciences. Brethren, get excited and worship the Lamb tonight with me. Amen. Worship the Lamb. He has saved us. And we have the hope, not the bare hope. We have the confident waiting of e for eternal life. Amen. How, glor how glorious is this? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel 23. Without sounding foolish in my words... These are also some of my favorite w words. I remember many years ago when the Lord showed me this passage. What a blessing it was to my soul. And I wanted to have that same level of joy as it once did. Second Samuel chapter 23. Oh, to die like this as David died. Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, Second Samuel 23 verse 1, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. Brethren, what you're about to get aren't David's thoughts, feelings, or his musings. These are the words of the Holy Ghost. Right. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. That is a perfect ruler. There's only one. And he shall be as the light of the morning. There's only one ruler like that. When the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, there's only one ruler like that. As the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain, there's only one ruler like that. Amen. Although my house be not so with God, if you look into David's family tree... There was so much sin, sin in David's life, sin in the lives of his children, repeated sin. He says, although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. Ordered in all things. There isn't anything offered in this covenant. It's ordered in all things. And it is sure, brethren... For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. And I believe those words, and I bring you the word of reconciliation with those words. Amen. That God has made with us an everlasting covenant. And this covenant speaks most particularly of the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, would sit one day on David's throne. But in that sitting on his throne was all of David's salvation, ordered and sure, and it would not grow, but it was all his salvation. Amen. I hope you love it tonight. Amen. I hope that no matter what sin is in your life, your past, your present, and brethren, pitifully in our future, and in your family, he's made with you an everlasting covenant. Amen. And it's enough for me. I can, I can show you many verses. I'm out of time now, but there's many verses in Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and Psalms that will tell you that the day... When you can destroy or alter or break the covenant of the day and night, then you can think about breaking this covenant. Right.
Several times God says, if you think that you can stop my day and my night, the ordinances that I have established in the heavens, then maybe, maybe you can break my covenant of eternal life. He said in Hebrews chapter 6, just to make sure that you'd have strong consolation and hope for your souls, he swore with an oath. Not only did he promise that he would bring eternal life, but he swore with an oath, and because he could swear by no higher, he swore by himself. That by two immutable things, we have a refuge for our souls. I need a refuge for my soul, and I give you one tonight. Two immutable things God promised, and he swore. That's good. That's very good. Brethren, tonight we're going to say these words. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. If you need to shout, go ahead. We ought to be shouting in our souls. Most people, when they come to communion, think that it's a funeral. And brethren, we ought to be sober about remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. But I want to tell you something. That covenant was sealed up 2,000 years ago, and now we're remembering what he did for the benefits of it, for his glory. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which was shed for many for the remission of sins. Amen. Amen. You want to see a glimpse of this covenant? Look Look at Revelation 11. Revelation 11. I read to you earlier tonight from Revelation chapter 5. The entire chapter 5 is about the covenant of God. It's a picture for you. It's a picture of God sitting on the throne with a book. It's the book of the covenant. And it's sealed with seven seals. And John is seeing this and he wept because there was no man to open the book. The book has your names in it and all the, benef- all the benefits of the last will and testament of God. It's the everlasting covenant. You say, how do I know that? Because when the book is picked up, I know what song they sang. That's how. It's simple. You say you're a genius. No. I just read it. And I read it to you. And I give you the word of reconciliation. It's the book of the everlasting covenant of God. And who came and opened it? John was weeping. And an angel came and said, don't weep. We've found someone to open the book. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, brethren, it says he looked like a lamb. It it says he looked like a lamb slain. But yet they called him the lion of the tribe of Judah. Praise his name. Do you love the lamb of God tonight? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. You can read all the books that you want about Richard the Lionhearted. I want the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here's what it looks like. Here's where this last will and testament is kept. Do you know when your father dies, one of the first things you want to know, or if if he's in the hospital and he's on oxygen and the doctor says he's only got a day or two, and if you've got to ask him just a few questions, you want to ask him where the important papers are. And that is not a disrespectful thing to ask because if he hasn't told you ahead of time, he deserves to be asked then. Because a wise father is going to tell you. But I want you to see a picture into heaven that God gives you of where the important papers are. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19. 
and the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. That's the picture that God wants you to have, that he has your papers, the papers that give to you the benefits of eternal life and all spiritual blessings, and yea, to inherit God himself, are kept in a place in the temple of God, and they were seen briefly here in one verse, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and earthquake and a great hail, as God preserves that ark of his testament, and there are papers, your names are on them. Amen. May the Lord be praised. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 21 closes with these words. And this is my prayer for all of you, brethren. As we partake of these elements now and remember his death for us, he died so that we would take that grace and that free conscience that we have, and that conscience should be free now. We should be rejoicing to take the Lord's Supper. What should that conscience propel us to do tomorrow and the next day if Jesus tarries? The next verse. It's one long sentence. Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. What is the purpose of that covenant? To make you perfect in every good work to do His will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. To make you perfect in every good work to do His will. And to work in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. Brethren, this is practical grace here in Hebrews 13, 21. He does not force you to do it, but I want to tell you something. He's given you all the grace to do it as a result of his covenant. And if we are like the Apostle Paul, we will reason with ourselves that if one died for all, then we're all dead, that we henceforth should not live for ourselves, but for him who loved us and gave himself for us and bring forth this kind of fruit. 2 Peter 1.9 says that those who do not have fruitful lives have forgotten that they were purged from their old sins. They hear me read Revelation 11.19 and it doesn't mean anything to them. God have mercy on them if they're his children. If not, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.